This is the Scott Bradley Show podcast. Did you hear, by the way, about what happened with Amazon? Now, you know that Hamilton is bidding to try and get this new Amazon headquarters, HQ2, they're calling it for Amazon. It's going to be 8 million square feet of space. It's going to be worth $5 billion worth of infrastructure that we're going to pay for this. It's going to have 50,000 high-paying jobs coming. And so uh, the bidding closed late last week. Yesterday, Amazon broke down who was in the bidding for this. Now, Hamilton is paying... I think we said, what was it, up to $500,000 that the city of Hamilton was potentially going to be putting towards our bid. It's a lot of money because, a lot of money being spent because there are 238 cities that are bidding to get Amazon. 238 cities are putting in a bid to get Amazon's new headquarters. In fact, as, uh, as the New York Times pointed out, it is simpler to note the places that aren't bidding to woo Amazon, uh, Amazon put out a color-coded map on its website showing that they got bids from all but seven states in the United States. 43 of the United States put forward bids. In Canada, the Yukon, Saskatchewan, and New Brunswick were the only provinces that didn't have a city or more put in a bid. In Mexico... Mexico had three applications. Chihuahua, Hidalgo, and Cuyatero were the only three. But everybody, everybody apparently is trying to get this headquarters. And, and you can understand why with the money that's being talked about and the amount of infrastructure and everything else. But here's where it gets crazy. Well, let me run down. I'll give you, and this is, the sh- this is only what USA Today has been able to come up with as far as the cities that are in the running for sure. Because of the 238, there was no obligation to go public with the fact that you were bidding. And apparently many of the places have done it very quietly. Some have been very loud about it, but some have been very quiet. Here's a very quick rundown of who Hamilton is up against. Atlanta, Austin, Baltimore, Birmingham, Alabama, Boston, Bridgeport, Connecticut, Buffalo slash Rochester, New York, Camden County, New Jersey, Charlotte, North Carolina, Chicago, Cincinnati, Cleveland, Columbus, Dallas-Fort Worth, Denver, Detroit, Gary, Indiana, Hartford, Connecticut, Houston, Indianapolis, Irvine, California, Kansas City, Knoxville, Las Vegas, Long Island, New York, Los Angeles, Louisville, Memphis, Miami, Florida, Milwaukee, Minneapolis, Nashville, Newark, Northern Virginia, New York, Orlando, Philadelphia, Phoenix, Pittsburgh, Portland, the Research Triangle in North Carolina, uh, which is North Carolina, uh, Sacramento, Salt Lake City, San Diego, San Francisco, Maryland, St. Louis, Tacoma, Tampa, St. Pete's, Toledo, Tucson, Washington, Wilmington, Westchester County, New York, and on and on and on. And that's only the American ones. We are... um, it's a competition. But here is what's the interesting part to me about this, among other things. The, the things that some of these cities and these places have done to try and get Amazon's attention right off the bat. So Tucson, for example, Tucson, Arizona. I don't know if any of you have ever been to Tucson, Arizona. Beautiful, beautiful city. Very dry, right on. Tucson is, is a, a beautiful modern city, but you get to the edge of the city and suddenly you're in the desert. The city sort of ends, and there's the desert. And the thing that is most known about Tucson, or at least one of them, is the cacti, the cactuses. So Tucson sent a 20-foot-one, 20, 20, sorry, 21-foot 
tall saguaro cactus. That's one of the big tall ones with the arms that come off it. Uh, to Seattle, to the Amazon headquarters. They wanted to get Amazon's attention. Um, of course, Amazon apparently has a policy they don't accept gifts, so they had to send it back. But there you go. There's one of them. Uh, Georgia. In Stonecrest, Georgia, it's a town of only, well, it's a town city of 53,000 people. So essentially it's Ancaster plus another 10 or 12,000 people. Uh, what they've done to try and win over Amazon, Amazon's heart and to have them settle there, they have promised that if Amazon were to choose Stonecrest, Georgia, they will change the name of their city to Amazon, Georgia. They will name the city after that company. In Pittsburgh, Primanti Brothers, which is apparently a really good deli, never been there, don't know about it, they have promised that if Amazon sets up in Pittsburgh, every single employee will get free sandwiches. Um, this one, I don't even get this one. I don't understand this one. But in Birmingham, Alabama, they've set up buttons around the city. Amazon has dash buttons. I don't know what those really are. But anyway, you can walk around in Alabama, and if you press one of these buttons in a public space, it sends 600 pre-written tweets to the Amazon headquarters. I think that it's going to be very short time before Amazon is very fed up with being bombarded. But anyway, in, um, in Charlotte, North Carolina, the mayor has declared that if Amazon chooses to come there, they will proclaim a new annual statutory holiday one day a year. Amazon Day. There you go. There's another one. But there are more. New York City... Uh, on the day that the bidding was closed, turned all the buildings that it could convince in the city to do this, Amazon Orange. They had all the buildings light up with orange to show how much New York City wants to get it. In in uh, Kansas City, the mayor, who I love this guy's name, the mayor of Kansas City is Sly Jones. We, we need to almost have some Barry White music from last night playing in the background with Sly Jones. But Sly Jones has got his people in his office to go on to a thousand Amazon products and give them all five-star ratings to try and bump up. So they're, they're saying, hey, Amazon, i got to talk like Sly Jones. Hey, Amazon, we're going to make you have a thousand great five-star products just because you're going to be in our town. That's what Sly Jones is saying. So those fourteen ninety nine wind chimes got five stars now because I'm Sly. I'm Sly Jones. Here we go. Sexy Sly with the fourteen ninety nine wind chimes that got five stars. Oh yeah, Amazon. I think I'm gonna send some five star slippers. Anyway, that's enough of that. <laughs> in uh, in um. Frisco, Texas. What do they do in Frisco, Texas? Um, they got uh, they got Jerry Jones, the owner of the Dallas Cowboys, to handwrite a letter and uh, got Jamba Juice in there talking about giving free product to Amazon people. In uh, in Ottawa, oh, see, Ottawa may have had one of the sillier ones, and I, I, you know, considering it's where most of the people who work for our federal government work, it, that's not a surprise. At the Ottawa Senators games. They uh, put up, in, during the middle of a game between the Ottawa Senators and Vancouver Canucks, they put a noise meter on the big screen and asked the tenders, asked people at the hockey game to scream for Amazon, make noise for Amazon. Whatever. Lame. 
in, um, let us keep going here. Oh, in uh, New Jersey, in Newark, New Jersey, Chris Christie. Well, here's Chris Christie's going the old fashioned way, the old New Jersey way. What do you think they're doing? No, no, no. They're not going to put them in cement shoes and throw them in the river. Uh, no, no. But they are offering $7 billion in tax breaks so they don't have to pay taxes. Just all out bribery. We're gonna New Jersey's giving you seven billion dollars. Amazon, come see us. Uh, I told you about the San Antonio, Texas. They uh, what are they doing here? They are. Oh no! They sorry. They, that was one that they didn't. They intentionally did not put anything for. But here's the weirdest one. Here is absolutely the weirdest one, and I don't understand this at all. Uh, however. Somebody might get it. Did you see what Calgary did to try and win Amazon's love? They put out an ad. They put ads in the Seattle newspaper from the city of Calgary with a picture of a guy who could best be described as appearing as though he's been lost in the wilderness for about 12 years. That he somehow took a wrong turn and then bumped his head and didn't know where he was. He's got the long, unkempt beard. The hair is going in every direction. And it says, hey, Amazon, not saying we'd fight a bear for you, but we totally would. So Amazon, or Calgary, has decided their marketing campaign to try and win Amazon's love is to wrestle with a bear. I would like to see Mayor Nemshi doing that. That would be quite interesting to see that happening. Uh, Yeah, Ben says, how Canadian. What I don't understand about any of this stuff, except for the Newark, New Jersey one, which is, you know, what it is. Does anybody in any of these cities actually think that Amazon is going to choose what city it's going to with its new headquarters based on silly marketing campaigns or gimmicks? They're going to go where they get the best deal. They're going to go where they get the stuff they want and where the people are going to give them what they need. So... Screaming for Amazon, Ottawa, or wrestling a bear for Amazon, or sending a cactus. I mean, did, did the people in Tucson really believe, hey, we sent a cactus? We got a, so the, the people at Amazon are going, hey, we got a cactus. We got to go to Tucson. They sent us a cactus. I don't understand. But anyway, 237, because there's 238 in total, 237 places Hamilton is bidding against to try and win Amazon, to win the headquarters. I, I hope we get it. I still hope we get it. I kind of wish that there weren't quite that many cities to have to bid against, but it's what it is. That is life. That is life when you're talking about $5 billion and 50,000 high-paying jobs. That is life. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900 CHML. Within the next few days, Thousands of previously sealed documents about the assassination of former President John F. Kennedy are scheduled to be released. We're told they're going to be released. I shouldn't even say scheduled, but we're now told they are going to be released. These are documents that have been under lock and key, presumably only seen by a few government people, really since the time of the investigation into JFK's assassination back in 1963 and then through the Warren Commission. We don't really know exactly everything that's there, which is kind of the whole point of why they're being released. The question, though, is, after all these years, will these new documents tell us anything that we don't really know about 
the killing of the president? Will they clarify things? Will they confirm a certain conspiracy theory or debunk another certain conspiracy theory? We're going to find out, I suppose, in the next few days. Well, Randy Owen is a Tilsonburg native who has been studying and researching and in more recent years speaking on the JFK assassination. Uh, he joins me now. Randy, thanks for doing this tonight. Hey, Scott. Thank you very much for inviting me. What do you think is going to be in these? Anything of value? Uh, believe it or not, I think one of the documents says actually three blank pages. That'll be uh, helpful. Yeah, it should be. Um, I think there will be some things there. There'll be more pieces to the puzzle, but I don't think we'll actually have any definitive answers uh, with the documents. There are like three uh, three thousand one hundred documents, and each document could be anywhere from one page to hundreds of pages. Uh, the the thing I'm interested in finding out uh, is looking at Lee Harvey Oswald's two hundred one file with the CIA. Uh, now, back in the early days of research into the Kennedy assassination, a lot of people thought once the CIA opened a 201 file on somebody, that meant that that person was probably an employee or an agent of the CIA. Not necessarily true. It just meant that the CIA was interested in finding out information about that particular person that it would open up a 201 file on. Oswald was a likely candidate because he had defected to the Soviet Union back in 1959 or tried to defect lived there for about three years, and then came back in 1962 to the United States, and then, of course, uh, the Kennedy assassination followed a year later. Um, I suspect a lot of the documents in the 201 file were probably added after the assassination. Uh, But here's the thing that's fascinating to me. 56 volumes are uh, what makes up Oswald's 201 file with the CIA, uh, one volume in particular has like over 780 pages. So it's going to be a lot of reading over the next several years, possibly decades. Why, Randy, though? With uh, We know that over the years certain things have been released. We know certain things still are not in public. We know, for example, and I learned this today, I didn't realize this, that, for example, Jackie Kennedy, the pink suit that she was wearing when JFK was killed, that's in lockup until I think 2031 is the first time if anyone was going to put that on display. So there's things that are still not out there, but why have these documents in particular not been released until now when others have? Um, A lot of it is, I think, uh, there's a certain cult of secrecy within some of these intelligence agencies from the CIA and the FBI, and particularly the CIA, Um, and I think they they restrict uh, and, and redact a lot of portions of documents because it's like a bureaucratic thing. It's it's become a, an almost institutionalized thing where they want to keep a, a lot of sources and methods of intelligence gathering secret. And especially Oswald's trip to Mexico um, about eight weeks before the assassination uh, is fascinating because he walked into the Soviet and Cuban embassies down there. He was photographed. Uh, there were supposedly voice recordings made. Uh, as a matter of fact, I asked a CIA agent once if the CIA had made the voice recordings of Oswald, and he said, well, you know, you're getting into an area where I can get myself into a lot of trouble. So uh, it's the sources and methods, and, and it's ridiculous now, over 54 years later, to think that they're still protecting the fact that the, the CIA had hidden cameras and microphones at the Soviet embassy to pick up uh, what was supposedly Lee Harvey Oswald walking into those embassies back back at that time. So um, that's the main reason why, I think, is because they want to protect their sources and methods, even after all these years. And, and quite frankly, it's ridiculous that some, some of those sources and methods might still be around. But, Randy, that's, I think, what's causing some people to think that there's going to be something big here, because if 
other stuff has been released for the same reason you just said, to protect sources and things like that. Well, if they're finally, if the ones that are the last bastion, the last gasp is finally being out there, there's going to be something really good in here. Not necessarily. Um, like I said, there's one one document that's got three blank pages to it, <laughs> which is just ridiculous when you stop and think about it. But there are some fascinating things. It's like things. one of my high school exams. Yeah. <laughs> there are some fascinating things that I think are in there. Um, but if you want to if if find out what happened in Dealey Plaza, you have to look at the witness testimony and the medical evidence, and a lot of that stuff has been gone over over the years. Uh, but the only thing that relates to the actual uh, uh, assassination, uh, whether or not bullets were fired from different areas or whatever, uh, is one eyewitness statement, and that's from Jackie Kennedy herself. She gave a, an interview to an author back in 1964-65, and uh, he had uh, decided that he was going to keep the, that material under lock and key, probably until after the death of uh, Kennedy's last sibling. Of course, Caroline Kennedy uh, is still alive today. But uh, this is one of the things that's in those files, and it's Mrs. Kennedy's. It was two days of interviews that she went through, and probably it's the most detailed uh, interview she ever gave on the subject. So that would be fascinating to, to, to finally get a chance to not only read the transcript, but hear the tapes themselves and that sort of stuff. Uh, but the rest of the stuff, it's all, uh, like I said, pretty much CIA stuff and FBI stuff. Uh, one of the uh, people that Oswald supposedly met with at the Soviet embassy was a KGB agent by the name of Valerie Kostikov. The 167 pages of his file have never been seen before. Bits and pieces might have you know, dribbled out uh, various other documents, but his file is one of the files that will be released hopefully on Thursday. Do you think that the stuff that we're going to get is going to be compelling to the average person. To you, I, I have no doubt that it will be fascinating because you've studied this for years, to a lot of others who have done it, but to Joe Public who, you know, well, tell me when something happens. Are there going to be things in here that are going to be really interesting to them, do you think? Um, yeah, I think so. Uh, when you realize uh, the depth of uh, what the intelligence agencies were doing back in those days, uh, for example, there were about 440 documents that came out a couple of months earlier and uh, one of those documents uh, show that uh, the mayor of Dallas at the time of the assassination was a CIA asset. Now, whether or not he was involved in the assassination, I doubt it. But because he just happened to be the mayor of Dallas, he was a CIA asset. It was a program that the CIA, uh, CIA had back in those days, trying to enlist the help of uh, various mayors of big cities uh, to help them out with information on maybe uh, foreign people or if there were uh, Soviet uh, uh, government officials that were on official state visits or whatever, that sort of thing. But the fascinating thing about him is that his brother had been uh, the deputy director of the CIA, and Kennedy had fired him back in 1961. And, of course, the mayor was responsible uh, in part for planning uh, the motorcade in Dallas that day. So some interesting questions that we still don't know the answers to. The the suggestion is, not even a suggestion, the absolute statement is that this is the last batch of documents that are there. Do you believe that, or do you will you always have some doubts that there have been a few that have been tucked away and you're still never going to see? Well, this is supposedly a batch of documents that the Assassination Records Review Board gathered back in the 90s, and uh, they decided that there were some that couldn't be released back then, and so they said, well, we'll have to finally release them because uh, it was their mandate to find as many documents as they possibly could and release them. And they said, well, this last batch that we considered still secret at this time, we'll have to release in 25 years. So now that the time is up, this is the, that's the reason why these documents are finally coming out. It presupposes that the review board 
found all of the documents. Mm. Well, they didn't. Um, for example, just a couple of weeks ago, uh, in, in Dallas, there were uh, court records from Jack Ruby's trial. Of course, Jack Ruby was the guy who shot Lee Harvey Oswald, the alleged assassin, two days after the assassination. He went on trial back in 1964, and uh, a lot of the court records from that have never seen the light of day until now. So obviously the review board did not have those documents. And I can tell you, as a matter of fact, that there are probably other documents. Uh, there were foreign documents that were handed over uh, to the review board back in the 90s, but there were documents in Canada that the review board probably never, never even knew existed. Uh, for example, there was a Canadian pilot working for the CIA uh, trying to uh, help in the assassination plots against Fidel Castro and to help the resistance movement against Castro in Cuba. He was in a Cuban jail. Uh, the day of the assassination, ready to go on trial. And this was a Canadian who was working for the CIA at the time. Uh, there have been other reports uh, of mafia theories uh, about them being behind the assassination. There supposedly was a, a guy back in 1970 who was in Hamilton who claimed to have uh, information that the mafia was involved in it. And those documents, I'm sure, have never seen the light of day, and the review board never even knew about them. So there's still plenty of documents out there. These aren't the final batch. When, I'm trying to, when the documents, these ones that are now coming out, I'm trying to think back at the very end of the movie JFK, that for a lot of people is their, uh, their knowledge base for this, this, this story. At the very end in Oliver Stone's movie, if I recall correctly, there are words that flash up on the screen. Was one of the things about Thursday that says that the documents will be are still in custody and won't be released until... Am I correct about that? That's what got this started. It was a final title card at the end of the movie that talked about uh, an investigation back in the uh, late 1970s from the House Select Committee on Assassinations, a congressional committee. And uh, their files were supposedly kept secret for the ones that they didn't release for about 50 years. And people were outraged about that. So this uh, review board was formed with the task to find as many documents as they can. So that's thanks to Oliver Stone in that movie, whether you believe uh, his thesis or not. This is what got uh, this whole idea of getting all these documents together and finally getting them released. Well, his movie certainly exposed this to a new generation of people, at least some of the questions. Now, again, whether you, uh, according to his theory, I think um, everybody, including you and I and our parents, were involved in the assassination. (laughs) But nonetheless, when you look at that movie overall, it confuses some of the issues for sure, but on on balance, was that a good or a bad thing for the people who are investigating this case like you are? Well, it was a good thing because it, it finally drew attention to the fact that all these documents were under lock and key at the time that the general public didn't know about. And so now... Uh, again, thanks to Oliver Stone, and, and that just that one moment of the movie, um, it, it, it showed to, to the American public and, and, and beyond America, too, that uh, these documents were around, nobody had seen them, and it was about time that we finally got them released. As a matter of fact, I remember back in the day when the movie came out, um, I met Oliver Stone shortly after the movie came out, and I had a little uh, button that said, uh, Free the Files. And <laughs> so I had him, not quite autograph it, but I had him put the word all in there. So it said, Free all the files. Is uh, What's your personal theory of what happened? What, I mean, again, there are more theories from more people uh, involving CIA or FBI or Russians or Cubans or Mafia. Who do you think killed JFK? Well, I've ruled out suicide. <laughs> that's that's a good one. Yeah, I haven't heard that one. Um, I, I think what happened was uh, there was a, a group of people um, 
in in various groups that were trying to get rid of Fidel Castro back in 1963. With the Bay of Pigs and everything else, sure. Yeah, and, and the Cuban Missile Crisis and that sort of stuff. And the CIA uh, had tried uh, to enlist the mafia to help them to kill Fidel Castro. That, well, that all came out back in the 1970s. But I think there were certain individuals uh, within those groups, uh, the CIA, the mafia, and Cuban exiles, they were all working together at that time. Uh, but there are certain individuals that hated Kennedy just as much as they hated Castro, and they were having a difficult time trying to get rid of Castro. So I think somebody hit upon the idea, why don't we kill Kennedy, blame a patsy, like uh, somebody like Lee Harvey Oswald, who had a, a, a Russian background, that sort of stuff, and, and then by, by the summer of 63, before the assassination, uh, had a fascination with Castro in Cuba, blame him for the assassination, and then try to connect him to Castro. And I think in the hours after the assassination, you saw that happen with various Cuban exile groups in the southern states, particularly in Louisiana, putting out false information about Lee Harvey Oswald. And then I think once Castro was blamed for Kennedy's assassination, uh, the the blowback and, and, and the pressure would build uh, that the United States finally had to do something to get rid of Castro, and they had a legitimate reason to do it. So, so the thinking went, and so an invasion of Cuba would have would have followed the assassination of the president of the United States in revenge. However, um, I think government officials realized because there were still so many connections uh, with Castro to Russia and that sort of stuff, Russia would be involved. It would lead to World War III, and that's the reason why the United States government, I think, had to cover up all that. Uh, not only because that there were some people, probably individuals within the CIA, not as an organization. I'm not saying the CIA as an organization might have been involved in it, but probably an individual or two or three uh, like-minded individuals uh, and Cuban exiles, too, who were in on it. And I think that's the reason why the, the government had to cover it up and frame Lee Harvey Oswald, was, was basically to prevent World War III from, from starting. But we'll never know, even with these documents, even if every document that was ever created was made public. We're never really going to know, are we? No, I don't think we ever will. And I think it's naive to think that we're going to find the answer in these documents. I remember years ago, one researcher said, if we had access to all these documents, we could solve this case in in, in five working days. Well, I think it's kind of naive to think that somebody somewhere who knew the answer wrote it down on a piece of paper and they're going to stash it away somewhere. <laughs> but even if they did, how do we believe that person now? So much time has gone by. Who do we believe? That's that's the other thing too. It's it's it, this case is never going to get solved for that reason. Is because uh, there's so much information, misinformation, disinformation. If the truth ever comes out, nobody will know, and it might have already come out. Yeah, well, and, and you know, there's one other part about this that uh, I'm not sure that the folks who, and I'm not talking about you, but there's a lot of people who run this as a cottage industry. I'm not sure that they want this thing to ever be solved either. I'd like to see it solved. Well, f- for sure, know. but I- I'm not sure the people, for example, who run the Texas School Book Depository Building really want this to go away. That mystery keeps people coming in, keeps people buying stuff, keeps people touring, people who write books. There's a lot of people who would love this to at least percolate for a little while. Yeah, I think I think you're right. You know, and I've been down to Dallas and, and down to that museum now, uh, where, you know, that used to be the, the Texas School Book Depository. And, um, yeah, there are researchers out there or other people are, you know, in it for a quick buck, that sort of thing. And then there are serious researchers out there, too. Um, one guy in particular I'd, I'd like to draw attention to, his name is John Newman. He's a, a former major with military intelligence, and uh, he, he worked at the Pentagon for quite a while. He's right now in the middle of uh, writing a couple of books about about it, and his specialty is going through the documents, checking out the, the, the routing slips, where they went, uh, and, and ferreting out where these documents should have gone and that sort of stuff. 
and he's a brilliant analyst when it comes to this sort of stuff. And, and uh, he's found some pretty eye-opening stuff lately. And he, he really believes that there was a deeper connection between Lee Harvey Oswald and the CIA, whether or not Oswald was the assassin or not. And, and that still would be something that would be quite, quite fascinating to prove one way or the other, whether or not he had some connection to the CIA doesn't necessarily mean he was working for them if he was involved in the shooting itself. Randy Owen, listen, look, could do this for another two hours, but we're sadly out of time. But really appreciate the time tonight. Thanks for doing this. Scott, thank you for having me. Appreciate it. Uh, one other little note, by the way, as we go to commercial break here. One of the ironies in this, the guy who really got the conspiracy idea started. Now, it would have taken root anyway, but his name was Mark Lane. He was a writer who wrote a book right off the bat pretty much called Rush to Judgment, which took aim at the Warren Commission report. He died last year, so never actually got to see the end of the documents come out. Who knew? The stuff like that happens. But yeah, the guy who started this doesn't get to see it get finished. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900 CHML. Saturday night here in town, there is a professional boxing card that will be held at the Hamilton Convention Center. And over the last number of years, going back, I don't even know how long now, there have been attempts, some successful, some less so, there have been attempts to hold professional boxing cards in this city. But as I say, it has been a challenge. Some have worked. Some have nearly caused the promoters to rip out their hair. This is a sport that has become a challenge to put on in this city. Amateur, not so much, but professional especially, it has become very, very difficult. Well, they're going to try again. The last one was successful, put on by this guy. They're going to try it again. A group called Three Lions Promotion is putting on this fight. It's called Hamilton Fright Night. That's the name of the card at the convention center. The man behind this, his name is Dan Otter, and he joins me now. Dan, how are you tonight? Good. How are you? I'm doing great, thanks. Let's go right into that because boxing does have suddenly, probably not so much 50 years ago, but in the city of Hamilton, boxing has a bit of a complicated history. It is not... Uh, it's not always easy to make a go of it if you're going to try and put on a card in this city now. Yeah, no, that is correct. I know the last promoter personally, and uh, just like you said, he ripped out his hair. I mean, he had a headache. Um, The commissioner has now changed. We have a new commissioner with the Ontario Athletics Commissioner, and uh, he seems to be more willing to work with us on uh, timelines and matchmaking. So it's really really helped the promoter and the, the fight cards to happen. For you, if you're as the promoter, if you're going to build a fight card from scratch and you're going to try and put it on in this in a city, I mean here or anywhere else, but let's say here, what's it going? To, what are you going to put down? What kind of money are you talking about that you have to be willing to invest to hope that you're then going to make this thing work? Yeah, it's definitely going to be a small six-figure number. It's um, it's not just you know it's not a ten thousand dollar show by any means. So the prices get up there really quick. Purses purses are a large amount of it. Um, facility fees, right? Um, you got to pay the banquet center, the lighting, um, all the background, the OAC fees, the doctors, the paramedics, the police, the security goes down the line. It's a, it's a very big production of a show. So it's, uh, it's heavily invested. Definitely. So for someone, if they were going to be doing this, if they thought, Hey, you know what? I got a good idea. I'll put on a boxing card and make a load of dough. Um, mm, what would you say to them? I would say make sure that you're very confident that you're going to be able to pack it because it's all about ticket sales. We're not going to get no TV rights right now. We're in the growth of doing that. But so you need ticket sales to get back your money. So just make sure that, you know, add the numbers up quickly. Um, it's very, very hard to do. It's not an, it's not an easy uh, job per se. 
Um, so there's a lot of work that goes behind the scenes, and uh, it's not always prosperous. And the, the other challenge of it, though, I would guess, Dan, is that if you that you've got to be able to price tickets at a point where you're. I mean, you're not having Floyd Mayweather here for this, and that's not insulting the guys who are here. But we're not talking about hundreds of million dollars in purses. So you've got to have fighters that maybe don't have as big a name as others yet, but you still have to be able to charge a reasonable amount for the tickets to make that money back. That's correct. You can't go in, you know, you're not doing $20, $30 tickets, but of course you're not going to get the $1,000, $2,000 tickets, which are in Vegas. But you definitely have, the if it's local boxers, which we have a lot, the Wilcoxes and uh, Hickson and uh, Rushton and Ispa, so they have a network of themselves, which is a very big following. So that produces a lot of sales on their end where, where they're, they're contributing as well. So everyone contributes to big network and then the community gets involved as well. So why do it though? Like if, if there's so much risk, if you're going to put money out of your bank account personally to go into this on the hope that I'll be able to sell tickets and I'll be able to fill the place because if I don't, man, I'm taking a bath on this one. With all that in play, why do it? I like to say that you say the bath. <laughs> That's funny. Well, you could, right? Yeah, you know, you can absolutely lose your shirt 100%. Um, So there's more to it than just a boxing event as well, because as you know, it is a charity event. So to bring some awareness for that charity and to bring uh, monetary value and intrinsic value, that's uh, priceless to to our organization. We're very uh, community giving. So it's not um, always for uh, monetary value. There's a lot more self-fulfilling, self-achievement that will come through performing with the show. And also you have the boxers in the long term to, to build their career and to get them to win and get them to the platform they need to make that big person to get some of the money back for the team and for the boxer. So is this then entirely, if you put on a local card, is this entirely part of a long range play or can you look at a card like this and say, I mean, cause again, I, this is not, the, the fighters are not making a fortune off this kind of card. You're not maybe making any money off this. Is this all about, let me put something on so I can get my fighter some experience and down the road, hopefully he wins the lottery and gets the big shot. And that's where we make our money. There's definitely many aspects to it, but an aspect of the long-range forecast of the company definitely is that's your long-term goals, is to have that fighter get that purse for that 200 300 half-a-million-dollar purse, go in and win, and then propel to the next level where he's getting the seven-figure paydays. But on a smaller scale, yes, you're hoping to make money off the actual show, and you're also helping the community by, by raising money for charities and bringing awareness to people in need and, and, and societies in need. And, and it's really, in turn, all of it together. But then why not? So if you've got fighters, because you also work, you, you, you're a part owner of a gym here in town, a boxing gym. If you've got fighters who you look at and say, they've got a future and down the road we can make some money together, why not just send them to Montreal or to Alberta or to somewhere else where they have boxing cards, not deal with the headaches of putting on a show here and just say, I'll get them their experience that way. And then down the road, they'll get their championship shot. Yeah. So what happens is when you go into someone else's territory, let's say it's a promoter in Montreal, we're not going in as the A side. We are going to go in as the B side. We are going to go in as the underdog. They want to find guys that their guy is going to beat. It's not that they're going to beat, that they have an upper hand. Of course, they're going to pay you, and they're going to probably pay you a good sum, but then you're going to get a loss. And then now you're backtracking your long goal, but you're upping your short goal. So you've got to, very, you've got to balance it to make sure that you're not holding them back, but you're pushing them forward at the right pace 
for that bigger payday in Las Vegas and England and maybe in Montreal. But as of now, you want to not pick a win, but at least have some more input on the opponent. The um, again going the the fact that Hamilton has had this. I will call it a checkered past for now with boxing in recent years. Because once upon a time, again, I mean, Ed Beatty, if you go back, a guy in the Hamilton Sports Hall of Fame, legendary fighter. We've had legendary fighters from the city in the past. Um, But the fact that it's been a little more checkered, has that impacted the number of people that have become participants in the sport? If there's nowhere for them to see professional fighting live up close and there's nowhere for them to participate in a professional card, does that deter people from getting into the sport? A hundred percent, and I think that's where it's changing. There was no, um, there was no someone to look up to that was from Hamilton or that boxed in Hamilton or come to Hamilton and, and did something. So the boxing really got put, I felt, on the back burner on a local scale. We had no, we had no local fighters. We had no local fights. Then, and the amateurs seemed to like be building now too. So it kind of maybe a black eye on it. I felt, and then now it's really propelled. And, and you have Stephen Wilcox, one of the, one of the most well known local athletes I'd say right now and Kevin Higson and um, there's kids looking up to them coming up for signatures and and asking them for 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 boxing equipment and it's very impressive and they're great role models well there's also one other challenge you've had in recent years and let's say the last decade maybe 15 years and that is a lot of the people who once upon a time might have found their way into a boxing ring uh, MMA, the UFC, that kind of thing has been the big draw on TV. That's where the attention's been. And so if, I, if I'm thinking I want to get into fighting somehow, probably that's where a lot of the people have gone. Yeah, I would say in the past, um, when it came in, it kind of had, you know, a, a big fire behind it. And everyone was like, UFC, it was new and it was exciting. But I feel now it, it's kind of simmered down and it, it's at where boxing is right now you go to the bars it's not like everyone's going crazy for ufc 220 something and i I feel that boxing's always been there and everything in life really recycles itself fashion um housing market everything and it's like boxing i feel is at that cycle where it's coming back up how many people do you expect so if, if things go really well and again uh you're having this card it's called hamilton fright night it's at the convention center on saturday if things go perfectly for you i mean utopia exists and things go perfectly how many people do you cram in there the last two shows went perfectly you can only cram in 1450 people okay so that so, 14... so that's the max i can't go any further and that's another that's another obstacle in hamilton is because we have no facility to accommodate us we can't go to any other arena, uh, Dale, Under, Dale, Dale Underchuck Arena on the Mountain Arena there. Um, they won't take the glass down. It'll, it'll lose the effect, and Cops Coliseum is too big. So we need to find some happy medium that we don't have in Hamilton to facilitate what we need. So, so just under 1,500 would be perfect. And, and is it looking to you most shows now, because this is the third one I believe you've done in Hamilton, right. is, that, yeah. is this now a realistic thing that every time you do it you think you can get that number? Have you, like, have you found the, the, the magic formula to put everything together that that can be almost a sure thing? You know, when they say sometimes the third one's the charm, well, it seems like the third one's going to be the charm where you can minimize them costs that you were overseeing or overlooked or didn't know, and you learn the ropes, per se, and uh, you're going to do better and better, and this third one seems the, the, the most realistic and plausible of all of them. If somebody is in, now, are there tickets still available? 
That's correct. There are tickets still available. You can get them at the SNAPD website. So it's snapd.com under their events page. You can also uh, visit our beneficiary, which is the Hamilton Food Share. And that's hamiltonfoodshare.org under their events page. And you'll find tickets there as well where you can pay online with your credit card. And for people who want to, what would a ticket cost for this? Uh, General Mission is the only ones left. All the premium VIP and front rows have been sold. Uh, They offer dinner. Uh, You're going to pay $55 for a General Mission chair, but there's all great seating, and we have four screens around. It's a Canadian title fight, so it's a a real big deal. And and eight eight fights on the card? Eight full fights, that's right. Uh, Six of them are local, so six local boys and then two, two people from out of town. In the red corner. Dan Otter of uh, Three Lines Promotion and of Hamilton Fright Night again. You can go, uh, I think, st- and also with Steel City or Steel Town Boxing Club. And I think that on there maybe there's a link as well. But uh, That's go to. That's right. So Steel Town Boxing Club, 115 Hempstead Road. Unit 6, you can get tickets in person there. Um, and you can also visit their webpage, steeltownboxingclub.com. Dan Otter, appreciate the time today. Good luck on the weekend. Thank you so much, Scott. Have a great day. Take care. It is, uh, it is a challenge right now. It really is. And, and there are a lot of other parts that go into this as well. There's a lot of other pieces for this challenge. And we know all about the fact that there's a lot. We, if you were listening to this show a number of weeks ago when we had Vinny Ryan on, Vinny's one of the, uh, he's a boxing coach in town, one of the really great men of this community who has spent much of his life teaching amateur boxing to kids in this city. And he has pointed out very honestly, very upfront, that these days with all the talk we hear about brain injury and CTE and concussions and everything, that's another challenge around boxing. And the people who are tending to come into the gym now often are immigrant children, immigrant people who have come, who are new to Canada, who they are, this is a sport that they're familiar with, this is a sport they understand, they don't necessarily know how to play hockey they don't necessarily want to play hockey, but they have some background. The family does. It's There are challenges around the sport of boxing. But it's a choice. People can box if they want, and if they want to box, and they want to box professionally, it has been a huge problem to try and provide that opportunity in this area and to do it safely. That's another one. I mean, let's be honest. We, I'm sure that somewhere in someone's garage somewhere, there's been fight club stuff going on. That's the same everywhere. That To do it safely and to do it in a, in a licensed, registered, certified place, it, it all costs money and it all becomes a difficult thing to do. Well, if you want to see some, and again, the last event they had, apparently was outstanding. I did not see it in person, but the last event apparently was, uh, was very well done and was a great success. A Saturday night at the convention center, and you can go to the website for Steel Town Boxing. You can go to Three Lions Promotion. All those places will give you more information. The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900. AM 900 CHML.